Good morning, everyone. You can open up to Matthew chapter 1 if you have your Bible. And man, I'm just overwhelmed by that worship set. That was amazing. Thank you, team. And just the reality that our God reigns. Amen? Amen. That He is a ruling and a reigning God. And we are actually going to be talking about how Jesus is King according to the Gospel of Matthew. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, beginning in verse 1. Is everyone awake? They had their coffee? All right. Okay. If you don't drink coffee, you know, I can't like medically recommend it. I'm not a doctor, but I love coffee. Tea's great too. Uh, Matthew 1 verse 1. Let's uh, read God's word. Let's pray and dive into it together. This is God's word and it says, the book of the genealogy. Everyone say genealogy. Sounds kind of boring, but it's going to be pretty epic. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Everyone say son of David. David. The son of Abraham. Perfect. Who came first, Abraham or David? Abraham came first, but David's mentioned first. That's kind of interesting. Okay, the son of David, the son of Abraham, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Jesus, we're just overwhelmed by the goodness of who you are by your majesty, by your faithfulness, by the reality that in the midst of the chaos in this world, you are a God who rules and reigns. That you rule and reign with power, but also with grace. Jesus, we adore you this morning. We lift up your name. We magnify your name, King Jesus. And we welcome you here. We welcome your spirit. And God, we pray, we ask, Lord, that you would make your word come alive to us this morning. I pray that you would wake us up to the realities of scripture. That you would persuade us past the idea that these are just stories and fairy tales and beliefs. No, Lord. Would you persuade us of the truth that you are a living God. That has a plan of redemption to redeem all things, to restore all things, to right every wrong, to wipe every tear away. Jesus, would you persuade us of the reality of what you have done, of what you are doing, and what you will continue to do in Jesus. God, we give you our time and our attention this morning. And Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room or watching online that has not been born again into the family of God, Jesus, I pray that this morning that they would experience the gospel of grace, that they would place their faith in you 
and Jesus that they would be born again. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. My kids are at the age where Christmas is getting epic. Like, it's just so fun. I've got a four and a half year old daughter, a three year old son, and it's like the excitement of Christmas finally. You know, the first couple of years, it was like, you know, what's the big deal? They didn't really understand. But now, now they get it. Now they're like anticipating Christmas morning and there's this anticipation of what in the world is going to be under the tree. What surprise is going to be waiting for them? In fact, we've already had some families and friends already give them some gifts. And so they open the gifts and the surprise on their face as I hand them the bags and they're just, they're beaming and they're opening in the oohs and the ahs and the excitement and the surprise. It is such a joy. And as you know, for those of you that are parents or family members and you've given a little kid a gift and it is greater than what they expected, Oh man, the joy it is for us to give to them, right? Well, it's that surprise that we're going to talk about this morning. The title of our message is A Surprising Christmas. And just like that kind of magical surprise as a little kid opens up a gift to only see that the gift far exceeds their expectation, what we're going to consider this morning is the first surprising Christmas. Because the first Christmas certainly was a surprise and certainly was a surprise that far exceeded anybody's expectations whatsoever. Consider even for a moment just the title of our series, Majesty in a Manger. That in itself is a surprise. Like at at the least or at the most, at best, it's an oxymoron. At the least, it's a surprise. Majesty? What would someone who is majestic, someone who's referred to as majesty, why in the world would he be in a manger? Everything about the first Christmas is absolutely surprising. And in this first Christmas, what we're going to consider this morning is really just some simple truths. For the first surprise Christmas will reveal to us three things that we're going to consider this morning. The simple and surprising truth of God's hand, God's heart, and God's home. Number one, let's consider for a moment God's hand. Specifically, God's hand is in the details, okay? Let's, let's read verse 1 again of our text. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first line of the entire New Testament, notice this, it is a genealogy. Like what in the world? Isn't that kind of boring and kind of odd? Why is the first segment of the most important book in the history of the world, why is it a modern day Ancestry.com report? Like, what is going on here? But that's exactly what we are given. It seems odd to us, but to the Jewish audience reading this text, it would have made more sense. At this time, a genealogy was equivalent to a modern-day LinkedIn profile. How many of you have a LinkedIn account? Okay, you've got your resume on there. You've you're kind of in the corporate world, and you put your best on there to show the world exactly who you are, to show that you're trustworthy. Well, that's exactly what a genealogy did in the time of Jesus. The genealogy was a list of someone's family. What was most important in that 
that cultural context was the family that you came from. If you had a good genealogy report, that was equivalent to an epic resume. And just like with epic resumes, you kind of leave out the bad types of your employment history, you know, the times when it didn't go very good. In a genealogy at that time, you would erase those moments and just fill in all the good moments to prove and to show how trustworthy you are. And this is considerably important as we consider the gospel of Matthew. Every gospel account, if you didn't know, is a different perspective of Jesus. Each writer attempts to answer the question of who Jesus is by capturing different angles of Jesus' life and ministry. So Mark, the gospel of Mark, captures the picture of Jesus as the servant. Luke, the gospel of Luke, captures the picture of the humanity of Jesus. The gospel of John captures the picture of the divinity of Jesus. But the gospel of Matthew, Matthew emphasizes the reality that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is king. Therefore, a genealogy comes in handy because a genealogy proves the royal bloodline of Jesus. A genealogy is helpful to authenticate the legitimacy of Jesus's kingdom to prove that, in fact, he comes from a royal bloodline. And so what does Matthew first do? Matthew begins his gospel to do just that, to authenticate the life and ministry of Jesus through his genealogy. And notice the first way that Matthew refers to Jesus. The first phrase regarding Jesus is that Jesus is the son of David. Everyone say son of David. That Jesus is the son of David. Now this is kind of cool because if, as you read the gospel of Matthew, if you do it in your devotions or just skim through it and highlight the amount of times that this phrase is repeatedly used through the gospel of Matthew, it's more times in Matthew than any other account. Why? Because Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the long-awaited king. And so he's rooting the identity of Jesus, answering the question, who is Jesus? He's rooting Jesus's identity to David, to King David. Why is King David so important? Well, thousands of years before, King David was given a covenant promise by God. King David was the second king of Israel. He was a king who was a man after God's own heart. He was an anointed king by God. But one of the most important facts and realities about David's life was that God entered into a covenant with David known as the Davidic Covenant. A promise that provided hope to the Jewish people. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we read of this promise. It will be on the screen. He, referring to the offspring of David, shall build a house for my name. This is God speaking. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is known as the Davidic covenant. This is what makes David so exceptional. It wasn't really because David was a man after God's own heart, although that's important to know. What makes David so important is that God was determined to make a covenant promise with King David that his throne, that from the offspring or the sons of David, would come a throne and a kingdom that God would establish forever. And ever. Now, this was a kingdom 
that was highly anticipated by the Jewish people. But after years and years after failure and disappointment, which we actually kind of get a glimpse of in this genealogy, we find that David is actually himself kind of the peak of the kings within Israel's history. Like after David, there's a few exceptional kings, but it's mixed in with all this failure and this disappointment. And then the kingdom's divided. And then eventually they go into exile in Babylon. And so the Jews, although they were very excited, the nation of Israel was excited about this covenant and promised no doubt. Eventually, just like any unfulfilled promise, It left them defeated, discouraged, and disappointed. Surely, many believed that the kingdom would one day come, an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that the prophets would then describe as being a kingdom where every right will be wrong, or every wrong will be right, every tear will be wiped away, and a kingdom of victory and peace. But certainly, certainly many who knew of this promised kingdom would have abandoned the idea altogether. Such a kingdom, after years and years and years and centuries of failure and no promise being fulfilled of an eternal forever kingdom, certainly many people would have abandoned the idea altogether. Certainly many of Matthew's audience who are Jewish, they would have considered this kingdom to be for hopeful optimists, for the dreamers, for the childish. At this time that Matthew's writing, the nation of Israel was under the oppression of Rome. The word of God hadn't come to a prophet for centuries. Before Rome, they were under the control of other empires all the way back to the captivity of Babylon. Guaranteed, many had abandoned the idea of an eternal kingdom altogether. It must have all been just a fantasy. Make believe. And as we consider the audience there, yes, step into the story, as Pastor Rob says, we like to use that language. Step into the story. You've heard of the rumors of a king named Jesus. Maybe you've experienced Jesus in your life. You've gone from death to life, from being lame to being able to walk, from blind to being able to see. But you've heard for your entire Christian life that Jesus is coming back again. Only to be met with, hold on, I thought it was going to be this year and this year and this year and this year. And defeat and discouragement and, and confusion can enter into the Christian experience. In fact, some, even without thinking of the future kingdom, they, they've been heard of this abundant life that Jesus offers. But then their life doesn't really seem to match that abundant life. And so it leads certain people to deconstruct their faith bit by bit by bit by bit to where there's no faith at all. Certainly this idea of this kingdom is an idea that we've all considered, but many, many, many grow weary. They've heard the ideas. They've heard the promises of a coming kingdom, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom where death is swallowed up and suffering is no more. But it's easy to look around the world and be discouraged, disappointed, And defeated. The thought and the temptation, the doubt of it all, just being a fairy tale that I was brought up in at Calvary Vista when I was a little kid or some other church. That it's just a fairy tale. We got to be real. Life is hard. Enough of that optimist stuff. It's time to become a realist. This forever kingdom that Jesus promised, that the Bible promises, I don't see any of it here. That's the attitude of the hearts of many, many people. But Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, 
the Christmas story is a reminder that it's not all just a fairy tale. It's a reminder that the surprising truth that Jesus is in fact king, that Jesus himself is not some fairy tale that people have grown up learning in Sunday school. He's not just a fairy tale that pastors come on a pulpit and tell people week after week after week. No, he was a living man sent by God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, God putting on human flesh, and he was a son of David. The royal bloodline of David flowed through the Messiah's veins, through Jesus's veins, yet he's fully and completely God. He walked the face of this earth. He changed absolutely everything, and he's coming again. It's a reminder for us this morning as we look back at the promise of Christmas that Jesus came. That Jesus came as a humble servant, but he is going to come again to rule and to reign and to bring in this forever kingdom of David. This is what Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is showing us. That Jesus is in fact the son of David. That Jesus, in fact, came. Jesus is, in fact, coming again to fulfill the Davidic covenant that is on the screen behind me. He will establish an eternal kingdom in which we will reign alongside him as his children. Amen? Amen. That's the first thing we see here. Jesus referred to as the son of David. The second thing is that he's referred to as the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. So first, remember, Matthew's trying to capture the idea that Jesus is this king. So he puts David first and foremost. For them to experience this hope, like the hope that was lost as the world has gone crazy, as they're under oppression. Like, no, the one who's going to free us is here. The son of David is here. But then he links it to the son of Abraham. And this is important because Abraham was also given a covenant promise by God. The covenant promise is there on the screen, the Abrahamic covenant, which God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So not just the Jewish people, which is important to consider as Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. What he's showing is, yes, this Jesus, the Christ, he's the son of David. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's coming as a king, but he's going to come as a king of all. Not just one nation, but all the families of the earth will be blessed through the reign and the rulership of Jesus. So here... In this opening line, we have an announcement that is profound and comforting. It is an announcement that God has not abandoned his promises. That God's hand, notice, has been patiently working throughout the details and events of history to unfold his great plan of redemption. Certainly people have thought that God had been abandoned them, that God had forgotten them. But no, what is Matthew saying? That God has not forgotten his promises. That God will fulfill his covenants. That God has been working throughout all the details of history to bring us to the person of Jesus. It's exactly what we see toward the end of our text there in Matthew 1 verse 17. We read that again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What is he trying to communicate? 
Matthew's trying to communicate the incredible, beautiful, profound truth that God's hand is in the details. That throughout 42 generations, through millenniums, thousands of years, God is working and crafting and moving in the details of people's lives to bring about his great plan of redemption through the person of Jesus. To exalt Jesus. And it's safe to say, That God's hand is in every single detail of your life. Every single small detail of our lives. For a moment, just consider the details of Jesus' birth. Out of any period of history God chose to come, he came during this time. A time when Caesar Augustus was, this Roman empire was bigger. It was the first world's empire. The known world was known or or was, was ruling over that time. Never before in history had there been such unity throughout the known world. Everyone was connected through a common language, Koine Greek, and it was connected then also through um, roads and infrastructure. All the cities were connected. It was an era of the Pax Romana, of the Roman peace. Not only was this a time in which Christ would, would be born, but it would be a time where Jesus would bring the real peace. But notice, it was during this time, as the whole known world is under one person's control, that Caesar Augustus just suddenly makes the decision to make a world census. He wants to just see how many are in his kingdom. And so Mary, by this point, is already pregnant. And Joseph and Mary have to travel 80 miles, a a four to six day long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Okay, Mary is seven to eight months pregnant. Guys, just consider for a moment. Come on, honey. We got to go hop on the donkey. Four to six days. I know you're seven to eight months pregnant. It's okay. We got to make it all the way to Bethlehem. Why? Because he had to be registered. All of these different details that's happening throughout history is bringing Joseph and Mary to the city where Joseph was from, which is actually the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, so that the prophecy would be fulfilled of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where we read, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So that road of certainly inconvenience for Mary and Joseph, an 80-mile journey, a road that was uncomfortable, a road of difficulty, all of those different details, God was working behind the scenes to bring Jesus to be born in Bethlehem for everyone to see that this is the King. This is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited one that we've been waiting for. All of these details working together to exalt and magnify the person of Jesus to give God glory and to redeem mankind. And as we consider that, consider your own life. The road of inconvenience you've had to walk on. The life, the moments where life is uncomfortable. The moments where life is difficult. And the details of the family you were born into. And the details of the area you are from. And the details of your marriage and your work and your interests. The fingerprint, the hand of God is everywhere. 
within every detail of our lives to do what? To accomplish the same exact purpose as those listed in this genealogy. And that purpose is to redeem the broken areas of our lives to show us our need for Jesus and to experience the power of Jesus for the glory of God and for the good of other people. Take comfort in the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Listen, God isn't the cause of every bad thing in our life. No, evil and suffering and sin causes a lot of junk in our lives. But God is so great and he's so concerned and his hand is in the details that he is able to take the bad things in our life and work them together for his good. For his glory, for our good, it's his hand of redemption. So that's number one. God's hand is in the details. Quickly, let's just consider then God's heart for his people. Number two, God's heart. Who are the people of God? Well, the Christmas story tells us the surprising truth of the people of God. Here in Matthew's account, this is where the genealogy of Jesus is most shocking. If this genealogy was an act or a resume to demonstrate how trustworthy Jesus is, then it makes sense to begin with David and Abraham. But why in the world would Matthew fill in? Why didn't he clean up the other 42 generations of dysfunction, murder, adultery, wickedness, rebellion, and so much more? As you consider the genealogy of Jesus, we find out that the family that Jesus was born into was a dysfunctional and messed up family. Can you relate? It was a wild group as you go and you read through it. It's most shocking when you consider the mothers of Jesus that were mentioned. The mothers of Jesus were actually parenthetical little quotes of these these moms that that wouldn't normally be in a genealogy. Mothers wouldn't be listed in. At that time, women weren't trustworthy. They weren't supposed to be in the resume. Yet Matthew puts them in. The mothers of Jesus, the first he puts in is Tamar, the incestuous widow who literally dresses up a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law. And is pregnant and has twins. Tamar's mentioned. Then you have Rahab. The Canaanite prostitute. The Canaanites were the enemies of the nation of Israel. Yet her name is mentioned. She was a prostitute by trade. But by faith she let the spies in. By faith she was saved. But then you have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth, though, however, the Moabites were an enemy of the nation of Israel. Ruth was the one who actually set up shop in Bethlehem with Boaz. They were the great-great-grandfathers of and grandparents of King David themselves. And then he lists Bathsheba. But that doesn't actually put her name. Refers to her as the wife of Uriah, which is a dig. To not, to, not to Bathsheba, but to David. The wife of Uriah, not David's wife. If you don't know the story, Bathsheba was a woman in which David lusted over. He had her come and commits adultery and then murders her husband, Uriah. What do we see in this genealogy? It's that the people that Jesus come from are some messed up people. And that Matthew does not try to clean up the family tree and all the dysfunction. In fact, he just puts it there right there for us to see. Why? Because it expresses the heart of God. 
that God is a gracious God. In fact, this genealogy is dripping and oozing with God's grace. That you don't need to be special, that you don't need to be born into this amazing family, that you don't need to have it all together to be a part of the family of God. That no, that Jesus chose to enter into broken and messed up people's lives. To redeem them and to restore them. It was Tyler Satan, pastor and author, who said this, that the family of Jesus, the family Jesus came from, tells us everything we need to know about the family Jesus came for. It's beautiful. The messed up, dysfunctional family, amen, that, that Jesus came from, shows us that he came for messed up people just like us. That we would be born into the family of God. This is a surprising truth. This is the surprise about God's heart. That Jesus comes into a family full of mistakes, sin, and rebellion, drama, and dysfunction. Can we just get real here on the Sunday before Christmas? How many people, you don't have to raise your hands, but aren't entirely excited for next Sunday? Maybe because you know some of the drama that it's going to cause with family members. Who's not going to be there? Who is going to be there? The conflict with the grandkids and the parents and the grandparents and everything that's going on. Sometimes for many people, Christmas can be a reminder of just how kind of broken life is. For some people, some people it's a reminder of the loss that they've experienced in relationship or the loss of loved ones. But here we see in the first Christmas that the heart of our God is to enter into that brokenness. To enter into the sin and into the shame that God doesn't gloss over it. That God actually enters into it to redeem it and to restore it. This is the heart of our God. How do you enter into the family of God then? John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who received Jesus as Lord and Savior, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can be born into the family of God by placing your belief in Jesus. And for those of us that have been born into the family of God already, we don't need to clean up all the junk of of our lives. We have to allow Jesus to enter into it, to redeem it, and to restore it. This is the heart of God. A heart that is dripping and oozing with grace and mercy and love and compassion. And we see it all throughout Jesus' family, his genealogy. But it brings us in to enclosing, number three, God's home. Very short, very simple. I can invite the band to come back up. God's home is where he's welcomed. Notice this great king, the son of David, the long-awaited one. He's not born in a palace. No, we read in Luke's account that there's no place for him in the inn once they get back to Bethlehem. And so where is this great king born? He's born in a messy, stinky Manger. That is the surprising truth. The oxymoron of our king. Of King Jesus. That he doesn't come in in pomp and in pride. But he comes not to be served. But to be the servant of all. He comes to be born in a manger. To express his humility. To show that he has come to seek and to save the lost. There is no room for him in the inn there in Bethlehem. So where does he come? He comes where he's welcomed. They had a manger. And the same, my friends, is true today. Jesus comes where he is welcomed. 
God will make his home where he is welcome. Consider Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. Listen, it's in Matthew's account later on that we find the name of Jesus that the angel gives to Joseph is Emmanuel or God with us. God came down to be among humanity so that we don't need to work our way up to him. God came to be with us, to enter into the suffering, into the shame, into the sin, to experience it all so that he could live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. So that he could redeem and he could restore everything. And he went on the cross and he paid the price. He made a way when there is no other way that we would be restored in relationship with the Father. He was buried in a grave, but then he rose again victoriously, conquering sin and death. And he's alive today. He's seated at the right hand of God and he is praying and interceding for us. But as he sat there at the right hand of God, he sent the Holy Spirit to make a home within our hearts. But he only comes in when he's welcomed. And so in closing today, I want to give you an invitation. If you've never invited Jesus into the home of your heart, you do not need to clean it up before he comes in. You invite him in in the mess, in the sin, in the shame, in the suffering, in the doubts, in the questions of your life. You invite him in. He will make his home in your heart. He will fill it with peace and comfort and joy and hope and all of those things. He will give you life. And for those of you that have invited Jesus in. The reality is, is there can be corners and crevices of our heart where we invite Jesus into the living room, but he's not allowed in the bedroom or the closet or the bathroom or anywhere else. We hide the mess in those corners. And when we do, we will not, we keep him from what he desires to do, which is to restore and redeem all of those messy areas. So for those of us that are broken and messed up and we've been born into the family of God, but then there's some shame, some sin and some shame that we've tucked under the rug or thrown into the closet or into the corner, we need to welcome him into those places. And he will make those places his home. And he will redeem and he'll restore. And we will be filled then with the taste of the kingdom of God, which is peace and life and joy and hope in him. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for the Christmas story that you made a way when there was no other way. We give you honor. We give you praise. We give you glory. And Jesus, we just kind of open up. We peel back the corners of our heart right now to be vulnerable before you. Jesus, would you enter into the mess of our lives, the mess of our family, the mess of of our doubts, the mess of our sin, the mess of our shame? Would you enter into the mess of our lives to bring redemption, that your hand would move, that your hand would work, and that your heart of grace would be poured into those areas? And Jesus, I pray for those, anyone in this room that has heard about you, but you've just been a fairy tale to them. There's just been rumors of this Jesus and and they've gone back and forth considering whether you're real or not or how good you are. God, I pray that right now in this moment you would persuade them of the reality of who you are, of your grace and your goodness. And I pray, God, that you would draw them to a place of trusting in you, that they would be born again into the family of God. 
Would you do that this morning? In Jesus' name, everyone said amen, amen, amen. I'm going to invite everyone to stand up. We're going to close in a song of worship. For those of you that have been born into the family of God, would you just have an honest moment? This is my encouragement for you during this song. Just to peel back the corners of your heart and say, Jesus, I want you to have it all. I surrender it all to you. Every mess, every mistake, every failure, let them come in and redeem it and restore it. And if you've never been into, you've never been born again into the family of God, I believe Jesus is drawing you to him today. You've heard about him. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the good news. Now it's time to respond to him. And if you would like to respond to him, there's some prayer team up in the front. I'll be up in the front. Come up and place your faith in Jesus. Allow us to pray with you. Be born into the family of God. I'll tell you, it's going to be the best Christmas of your life if you make that decision. So let's worship him right now. We'll see you on Christmas Eve. God bless you all.